2 Kings chapter 5, and Lord, we do give this study up to you. Uh, just, I feel like I could use another day of studying. I just definitely feel rushed coming up here tonight. And, um, and so, Lord, just be bigger than that um, in my weakness. Speak to us and change us. This is an incredible account of Naaman, Lord. And so we want you to do the same thing in us that you did in Naaman uh, back there in Second Kings, Lord. Uh, just uh, let our jaws just drop in awe of who that you are tonight. Love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read about Naaman, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. How would you like to have a name like that? Hey, what's your name, man? Naaman. Yeah, what is it? Naaman. Yeah, what, what, what is it? Okay, I called Chad today. I was like, hey, what do you think of this one? Hey, Naaman, what's your name, man? Oh, yeah, no. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Come back, Holy Spirit. We do need you here tonight. Uh, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. We've got a, a General Eisenhower type guy here, you know, or a, a General Tommy Franks type man. But, but more than that, in the Syrian army, like the number two guy under Ben-Hadad II, the king of Syria. And it's so cool as you go through the historical books of the Bible right now, which is where we're at, uh, you see these names of kings, not just names of king of Israel, but the names of kings of uh, the Moabites and the Assyrians and the Syrians, different countries there. Uh, names of kings of Judah and Israel and Egypt. And the incredible thing is that as you look at the Bible, it's always backed up in the secular world by secular accounts. And as you know, last week we talked about Misha, the king of Moab, and how he was a real king who had a real big rock on the border of his country. And on that rock had the, a description of the battle that he wrote on the rock describing the battles between uh, Judah and Israel and the Moabites. And so, you know, the incredible thing about the Bible is geographically, archaeologic, archaeologically, historically, agriculturally, monetarily, any other word that you can throw in Lee at the end, uh, it's backed up through history and through secular writers. And it's so cool that our faith is a very real faith. And so you have this man, Naaman, who's under a king, Ben-Hadad II, who actually existed. And he's this incredible man, you know, this incredible general, uh, the commander of the army. We read that he was a great and honorable man. Uh, we're going to see that, uh, you know, he is not just great uh, through his military conquest, but he's a very wealthy man. Uh, he was an honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And so uh, this incredible commander, a victorious conqueror, a man who was well esteemed throughout the whole country. They, when he'd get back from battle, they'd have ticker tape parades just for him, you know, as he rode in on his chariot. His king loved him. His people loved him. He was wealthy. Uh, Notice it says there that the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now, that's an interesting concept that God fought for a foreign army besides Israel. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is, is that uh, the Lord is over the countries today. You read Romans 13 and you see that, you know, any king that's in place is a king that's been put there by God. And when that king wears out his welcome, 
the Lord raises up other kings to take that king out. You know, uh, you know, kings are ministers of God to execute wrath on those who practice evil. And uh, you see men like Hitler and Saddam Hussein and, you know, the, the Roman guys that they were taken out uh, by various armies. You read the book of Daniel and you see that the boundaries of the countries have always been put there by God to glorify God. And so, you know, that doesn't just mean for Israel, but that means for every country. Uh, the Lord raises up kings and he takes down kings. And, uh, and the Lord, in, in this case, had given Syria some major victories, even victories over Israel. Uh, since we've been studying the, the books of the kings, uh, we've seen that Israel has lost. Even in 1 Kings chapter 22, they lost a battle when Jehoshaphat and Ahab went up against Ben-Hadad. They lost a battle to Syria. And so how interesting that the Lord was the one who brought many victories for Syria and for Naaman, and uh, even at the, the cost of some, some victories for Israel. And, um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, you read uh, Daniel chapter 1, and it says that the Lord delivered uh, the king of Judah over into the hands of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's hands, that it was the Lord who allowed uh, Judah to be conquered by Babylon. And it's an interesting concept, isn't it? That God would allow his people uh, to be taken captive. But we see that that's what the book of First and Second Kings is all about, is it's God's warning to the nations of Israel and Judah that they turn from their idolatry and their sin, their idol worship and their sexual immorality. They would turn from those things to follow God again, because if they don't, Israel, we see, is going to be taken captive by Assyria, and a hundred years later, Babylon, or excuse me, Judah in the south is going to be taken captive by, I ruined it, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, you know, the Lord allowed uh, those victories to take place for the, for the bad guys, in a sense. Uh, we see that uh, Naaman was a mighty man of valor. And I just, you know, if you looked at my Bible, there's a lot of blue you might see. You know, as I read about Naaman, there's a lot of underlining, oh, mighty man of valor. What could that possibly mean? It meant that he was valiant in battle. You know, it meant that he was a man's man, you know, a warrior, a conqueror. You know, it can even mean, you know, he he was wealthy because of his valiance in battle. He was a great, great man. You know, Israel had all sorts of mighty men of valor. You read about them in 1 Kings chapter 23. Incredible read, guys. If you like reading about men of valor, you know, read First Kings chapter 23. And so it's interesting to read of a, a mighty man of valor on the, uh, the bad guy's side, you know, on the Syrian's side. And uh, so notice, you know, you, could, you can make a list. He's a great and honorable man. He's been given victory by the Lord. He's a mighty man of valor. And then there's this last three words in the sentence, but a leper, but he was a leper. Now, you got to understand that, especially in the olden days, to be a leper was like being given the diagnosis of AIDS, you know? And something you know about leprosy is that it starts out small, starts out small as a little tiny, tiny white spot on the skin, but it spreads. And how horrific it would be on that day that you see a little, is that a sunburn? You know, is that a, what is that, you know? And then, you know, four days later, it's kind of a blong, you know, and, uh, you know, a week later, it looks like South America, you know, and a little bit later, you know, what in the, you know, and pretty soon it's just all over your body. It spreads. 
Something else you notice about leprosy is that it isolates you because you start to stink. Your body starts to rot and get gangrenous and you start to smell. It's been said you could smell a leper 300 yards away. And uh, because they were so smelly, it would isolate them from the ones they loved in the community. They'd have to, you read uh, Leviticus, and they'd have to cover up their mustache and yell out, unclean, unclean, whenever they'd come around people that weren't affected because it spreads. It was contagious. And, uh, you know, just it's a sad disease to get leprosy. We know that leprosy numbs you, and recent research has proven that. You know, one day you're out shoveling in the garden and you look down and, and you're cut to the bone and you don't even know it. Perhaps you've walked around in the dirt for a while, you know, and so you, you know, infection starts to sit in. And then not long after, the leg would have to be removed or parts would fall off. That's the thing with leprosy is parts would fall off. And so a very miserable, a very miserable disease to have. The final thing about leprosy is that it's fatal. It's a fatal disease. And if you haven't heard the study when we were in Luke chapter 17, get online and listen to it because we did a whole study on how leprosy is a picture of sin. It's a picture of sin. It starts out small. We dabble in sin a little bit. Oh, just this little taste of sin. It's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody's going to know. Pretty soon before you know it, it starts to spread and you're in over your head. You know, and, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's been said that sin will make you do things you never thought you'd do, take you places you never thought you'd go, keep you longer than you ever thought you'd stay there, and make you pay a price you never thought you'd pay. And so it starts out small, takes you deeper, you never thought you'd go, makes you do things you never thought you'd do. Pretty soon you're paying a price, your family, you've lost your family, you've lost your life, you've lost your loved ones, you've lost your home, you've lost your job. That's what sin does. It spreads to beyond just a tiny little dot. It spreads and affects those you love the most. It isolates you like leprosy. You know, you think you stink. Most people don't even know you're in sin. Pretty soon you're not coming to church anymore, not looking people in the eye, you know, avoiding your pastors and your, the people that, you know, love Jesus. You're avoiding them. You're not coming to church. You know, sin isolates you. You're not able to worship and have fellowship with God. You know, it, And eventually, you know, sin kills you. The wages of sin is death. And so, you know, there's a picture there we're going to get to later on in the Bible study even more. But, uh, you know, we're going to see how even Naaman's leprosy is a picture of sin, but even better, a picture of redemption from our sin. And so uh, he's a he's a leper. Uh, Interesting, you know, if he was a Jew, he would have been, you know, he would have been isolated and made to go to a community and called unclean. But because he was a Syrian and they didn't have those laws, the law of Moses, he was still able to be this commander. You know, who who knows how deeply, you know, maybe he was losing appendages or, or, you know, maybe he was white already or whatever, you know, you you would get kind of a white appearance. Um, But regardless, he was still in this a uh, place of a uh, position and prominence and wealth. Um, he had to be a leper. He was in the good place. And so it says that the Syrians had gone out, verse 2, out on raids. You read about that a lot in the Kings, that the Syrians had these raiders, bands of raiders, and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. This word young girl, I'm going to try to butcher it for you. It's Nara uh, Kitana. Nara Katana, and it speaks of a young girl anywhere from infancy to adolescence. 
you know. So perhaps by the time these raiders had gotten this young girl, she was just a baby. And just, you know, you got to kind of put yourself in the place of this girl and her family. I have a little almost five-month-old named Lainey, you know, a little girl. I just, she's got me wrapped around her. I've got a boy, you know, having a boy is awesome. You have a girl, it's just a whole different relationship, you know. Uh, and, and just can't imagine if we were to be raided and Lainey, my five-month-old, was taken away to be somebody's slave, you know, somebody's servant, never to know her mom and dad. You know, you can only imagine uh, the grief that her family's gone through. But there's this young girl, a captive from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And so we have this girl who's in this hard time in her life, and yet she doesn't let that stop her from being a voice of faith, a little voice of faith. How incredible that this girl who's going through one of the harder times than any of us can imagine opened her mouth up to be this voice of faith for Naaman and his household. You know, people ask, how could God let this happen to this little girl? You know, where is this God that she serves? You know, if he's really real, how could he let her be taken captive? And that's often our question in our uh, humanism mindset. It's all centered around us and our happiness. You know, I can't tell you how many marriages I've seen fail because one spouse or the other or both have said, well, God wants me to be happy. So let's get out of here. Let's break this baby apart. I'm done with you. I am not happy with you. Hey, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us happy happy here on this world. He died on the cross to save us from our sin and from ourselves, you know, and if you know anything about the Bible, you know that we as Christians go through times of suffering. We go through times of chastening and correction to make us more pure and right in the Lord's sight, you know, and uh, we go through times where we suffer so that God can be glorified through our suffering. And we're going to see that this girl, this girl went through a time of suffering if for any reason, to glorify God through the life of Naaman. If that was the only reason, and we just can't ask why to the Lord. You know, you have to understand that he's in control. And um, so, and, and we see, you know, already her ministry taking place. A young girl, and how this young little, you know, this young little voice spoke up one day. And, you know, and said to Naaman's wife, if only my master were with the prophet Elisha back in Israel, if only, you know, man, if you don't read about this little girl and and you're encouraged to open your mouth and talk when the Lord tells you to open your mouth and talk, then man, read the verse again, you know, read through the chapter again. And when we're done with it, because how incredible we get so afraid to open our mouth and Jesus says, we're going to get to it one day when we get to the Olivet Discourse. But in each gospel, he puts it a different way. He says, you know, there's, there's going to be times when you're delivered up before kings and you don't know what to say before these kings. And it says that the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that very hour. In another gospel, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will speak for you during those times. And in another gospel, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance the things that you've learned. And so we get so worried about, you know, what, what am I going to say? And I know the Lord's been telling me to talk to my coworker about Jesus, but I just know they're going to totally thrash me. And, and I don't know enough doctrine. I don't know enough, you know, uh, biology. You know, what am I going to do? Open your mouth. 
And let the Holy Spirit speak through you. Let the Holy Spirit bring to remembrance those things that you've learned about him, those scriptures that you've hidden in your heart. Just watch. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians, just pray for me that I might open my mouth and make known the mystery. All Paul needed to do was open that trap. You know, people say, shut your trap. I'm saying open the trap so that others can be caught in it. And okay, take that a little too far. You know, just open the trap. Uh, but, you know, and, and we also see her faith that even though she was going through a hard time, she still had faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. She still had faith in this prophet Elisha, you know, and uh, no doubt an encouragement. The cool thing about Second Kings is that you get clear up to, I don't really remember, but, you know, chapter 20, I think it was, um, and it's all warning about, hey, you better repent or Babylon's going to conquer you. You better repent or you're going to be conquered. And then in chapter 20, they're conquered. And then the rest of the book is written after they come back from being in Babylonian captivity. And so you can only imagine the people had this book when they were coming back out of captivity, back to the land. And as they were on their way back, no doubt they read the story of this little girl, you know, this little girl who, who in the midst of hardship kept her faith in her God remembered who her God was. And so she's this incredible little voice of faith. Verse four, it's so cool because Naaman listened to this little girl. You know, Naaman went in and told his master, the king, saying, thus and thus said the girl who's from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver. That's 750 pounds of silver. And uh, definitely we could, could, could like a big bag of that in Prineville sometime soon. Um, 6,000 shekels of gold or 150 pounds of solid gold and 10 changes of clothing. So, you know, just these incredible gifts that Naaman, this very wealthy man, brings with them down to Israel. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel which said, now be advised when this letter comes to you that I've sent Naaman, my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, thought that, man, if there's a prophet down there in Israel, if there's a guy that can heal of leprosy, which, by the way, leprosy had never been healed before. It had never been healed before. It's something that had to be something divine if somebody could heal somebody of leprosy. You know, and so he sends this letter, man, if there's a man out there, a prophet who can heal somebody of leprosy, he's got to be under the care of the king, right? I mean, the the king has got to have this special little place just for this prophet to hang out and eat grapes and get fanned by, you know, those, all those, those fans, you know, palm fans, you know, and he's got to be totally getting pampered. He's got to be under direct authority from the king. So I'm going to send a letter. I'm going to send Naaman down to this king and and Naaman's just going to, or this, this king is going to just command him to be healed like that. It'll be that simple. Uh, but that wasn't the case as we know from reading in the past few weeks, really our prophet Elisha has been standing up with Elijah standing up against the Kings of Israel and to, to tell them, repent from your wickedness, and they wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it, and they hated Elijah, and they hated Elisha, and they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so it happened, verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, am I God 
to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. You know, so here's King Jehoram, the king of Israel. He gets this letter and he doesn't even think about Elisha. He doesn't even think about this guy who he knows is a miracle worker extraordinaire, has the hand of God upon his life, doesn't even consider him because he hates the guy. Doesn't want to think of him, doesn't want to invite him over. No way, Jose, you know. And, uh, you know, and he, and he just gets, he, he gets kind of frustrated. He's like, he understands that to heal leprosy would to be such a divine miracle. It'd be like killing someone or making them alive again. You know, something totally divine. Now, I just want you to contrast real quick. The king of Israel, God's chosen nation, Jehoram, and his faith versus, you know, this little girl over as a slave in Syria. Oh man, I know this prophet. I wish you could just go down there. I mean, I know we're enemies with them. I know you guys are enemies. I wish we could just go down there on a field trip someday, you know, and I'd introduce you to him and you totally get healed and it'd be awesome. Oh gosh, my God can do that versus the king of Israel. Who am I? Am I God? Am I supposed to kill someone, make him alive again? Oh, what am I divine? I, you know, you know what this guy's doing? He brought his, his second in command down here, you know, and if I don't heal him, he's going to say, you got something against my guy. You know, we're going to get in a fight. There's going to be war. This is what's happening. I mean, he just starts worrying and panicking and, and, and then there's little Sally, you know, up there in Syria. I don't know Jewish girls names or I would throw one out there, but little Sally up there, you know, just believe in God, you know, and uh, total contrast there. And so it was, you know, so, so King Jehoram rips his clothes and gets all angry. In verse 8, so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. Why is it someone's always around when you rip your pants? Am I right? I was in school of ministry. We had to load a U-Haul truck every Sunday for church. We were a mobile church. And I'm up in the church picking up, or I'm up in the truck picking up carpet. You just get this real quick. You know, top of my belt loop down to my knee in the back. People around. Uh, and it was loud. You guys have all been there. Uh, Jehoram, apparently his clothes ripped so loud, Elisha heard about it. Um, I also worked on that one all day. No, I didn't. Um, and so Elisha sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman went with his horses and his chariot and his gold and his silver and his 10 pairs of clothing. He's got like a wardrobe in one of those chariots, you know, with bungee cords all over it, trying to keep it in. And they go charging up and then he gets out and stands at the door of Elisha's house. So just imagine, I mean, I love the drama of the Old Testament, you know, you can just hear the thundering, the thundering of the chariots, you know, you know, pull up to the front of Elisha's house. Get out. Elisha knows they're coming, looks out the window. Oh, they're here. You know, he, he's there with his whole entourage, all of his gold, all of his cronies. They're with them. But get this. Elisha sends out a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. What is happening here? The number two guy in Syria just pulls up in his limo in front of your house, you know, with the press, and you send out your messenger, you no doubt a humble little home, you know, and a, and a little messenger walks out and delivers the message. Hey, go and wash and dip seven times in the muddy Jordan. How do, how do you think Naaman takes this, you know, response to his caravan? 
pulling up. Uh, well, verse 11, Naaman became furious and went away. You know, why would Elisha send out his servant? Because Elisha knew, you know, the pride of this man, Naaman. He knew that Naaman needed to be humbled if he was going to receive any sort of healing from Yahweh. And he knew that if he played into this pomp and this circumstance and this party and this parade, and you know, then he would just be playing into the pride of Naaman. And so he sends out his servant to, to do a, just go to a simple task, dip in the muddy river, the muddy Jordan. And, uh, and you will be restored and you will be clean. And Naaman was furious. He went away and he said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely at least come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, his God. And he'll wave, her, wave his hand over the place, over my leprosy and my chariots and everything that's been contaminated. And he'll heal the leprosy. It's just this prideful man. Everything about Naaman at this point we see the heart of him is a prideful heart. You know, well, at least I was hoping he'd have some sort of ceremony and come out and wave his hand, shake, you know, wave, you know, look at me. He didn't do any of that stuff, but we just see pride. And how sad it is that pride almost sent Naaman back to Syria the same way that he'd come down to Israel. He almost went away unchanged. He almost went back in his leprous state. And how that's applicable for us today. How we come to church Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, whatever, you know. And so many people in this church and in other churches, you know, they come in and the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And the Word of God penetrates their hearts. And they get up and they leave out those doors and they, they go away unchanged because of their pride. The pastor's calling me to lift up my hand and receive Jesus. I'm not going to lift up my hand. That's goofy. People will see me. Nope, not today. I'm out of here. Bing, out of here. The pastor wants me to come forward and, and get prayer from the elders, you know, and confess my sin and, and you know, be cleansed and encouraged. No way, man. That's going to have to cause humility in me. Not up to it, buddy. Ping, out of here. And how so many men and so many women, day in and day out, leave churches unchanged by God because of pride. That's why the author of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, allow him to change you. Lay down your pride don't let your heart get hard because the next time it's going to get harder, the next time it's going to get harder, the next time it's going to get harder, and the Holy Spirit won't be able to penetrate or speak to you. But today, humble yourself, lay down your pride, lay down what you think your rights are, and let Jesus change you and make your stony heart a heart of flesh. And so, man, how scary that Naaman almost, he was furious, he was angry. He wanted a ceremony. He wanted recognition. He wanted someone to receive his gifts that he brought down. He was embarrassed, you know? And, uh, and you read there in verse 12, Are not the Abana and the Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? He wants me the muddy Jordan River. 25 miles away. I just came down from Syria. He wants me to go another 20 miles east to dip in that nasty, nuh-uh, not going to happen. And he's just prideful. And I'm a mighty man of valor. The king of Syria is number two man. In verse 13, 
we have the voice of reason from his servants. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? I just love that the servants speak. No doubt this guy's like, holy cow, Naaman is so angry, but seems like such a simple task. Go to the Jordan and dip in it seven times. Go home, be clean. No big deal. I feel, Lord, is that you telling me to confront him on that? I don't know. Oh, oh gosh, Lord. Okay, can't be disobedient. Goes and speaks the truth to Naaman. If he would have asked you to do a hard thing, climb the Alps, you know, pluck a sprig of Edelweiss, you know, and, and, and climb an oak tree and grab a bald eagle egg, you know, and, and crack it open and mix the Edelweiss in and shave in the scales from a humu humu nuku nuku apu a'a from Hawaii and drink this potion and your, your leprosy will be gone. I'm a man of valor. I'll sail the seven seas to get the humu humu fish. You know, I will go to the tops of the Swiss Alps to get the Edelweiss. I'm a soldier. I'm a man's man. And I'm going to do, wait, what? What? Dip in the muddy river seven times. You know, totally angry. But I love the servant. Man, if it was something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than this simple thing to wash and be clean? And he reiterates the words of Elisha. You know, hey, Naaman, Elisha wasn't just telling you to go do the, uh, the uh, Leviticus chapter 13 deal and, and the, you know, the, the cleansing with the water. That's not what he's just telling you. He's telling you, you're going to be clean if you do this. He promised it. So go do it. I just love, there's no fear shown in this servant here. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the sayings of the man of God. He humbled himself, guys. I mean, even in the midst of his servants, yeah, you're right. Man, it takes humility to do that. He went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He was obedient to the word of God, not his own ways, but the word of the man of God, and he was cleansed. His skin became like that of a little child, and the wording of that little child is so clear it's so similar to the one, like that, that Hebrew word for the girl. And it's almost a play on words there. Some scholars believe it is that the man of valor, the mighty man who had a problem, went to the little girl who had the solution. But the, the idea was that he needed to become like a little child. And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a little child, then you'll by no means inherit the kingdom of heaven. It takes humility to be like a little child, to act like you don't got it all figured out, to realize you don't have it all figured out. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek. And this man's skin just became like, like a little baby's, no blemishes, no scars, no doubt having battle scars. And, um, and he returned to the man of God. And you might just underline that he returned back another 25 miles to the man of God, he and all his aides, and he came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. He returned to Elisha. You know, Elisha is a picture of Jesus. And if you read Luke chapter 17, you read about Jesus healed 10 lepers one day. And he told the lepers, you know, go 
wash, go show yourself to the uh, priests and you'll be cleansed. And the 10 went away. They were healed as they turned and went on their way. They were healed then. And only one out of 10 came back and thanked Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus here, a foreshadowing of what, what's going to happen. But notice what he says. He, he's had a conversion experience. He's renouncing all of his other gods, the gods of Syria, and he's declaring Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, to be the one and only living God in Israel. It's a similar uh, speech to that of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Just flip over to Daniel, if you will. Chapter 2, verse 47 Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, a very crazy dream. Daniel was called upon to interpret that dream, gave this incredible interpretation of the dream. In verse 47 of Daniel chapter 2, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Now, the interesting thing about Nebuchadnezzar, it's different from Naaman, is notice Nebuchadnezzar said he's the God of gods. He's saying there's still other gods out there. He's the big one, the big kahuna, you know, but he's the God of gods. And then if you look over in chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 28, you know, again, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are protected from the fiery furnace. You guys all know the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees uh, four men in the furnace. It goes, how many people did we throw in the furnace? Three, my Lord, you know, and he goes, well, how come there's four and the fourth one looks like the son of God? You know, it turns out they didn't get hurt in the furnace. They came out, not even a singe on their garment. Look at verse 28 there. Nebuchadnezzar spoke up saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I made a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. So an incredible conversion process for Nebuchadnezzar. He's realizing there's a God, which many do, and he's an incredible God, the God of gods, perhaps. No other God can deliver like this one. He didn't say there's no other God. There's no other God that can deliver like this one. And it's not until a few chapters later that Nebuchadnezzar gets booted out of his kingdom. He has this mental crazy thing go on where he, he goes and he starts acting like a donkey. And he starts eating grass. And his fingernails grow out like eagle's claws. And hair grows all over his body. He's like a beast. And the Lord took him to that place in his life for years until he realized it's not a God among gods. It's not a God who delivers the best. It's the only God. And if you look in Acts chapter 4, Peter says, Nor is there any other name under heaven by which men must be saved, the name of Jesus. It's not, oh, whatever works for you, or there's a lot of good people in East Asia that believe in a different God. You know what? They're being told about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit's telling them about Jesus because he's the only God and there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He's the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only God. And so you just see, eventually Nebuchadnezzar has, has a conversion, I believe, a conversion experience. Then you just look over in chapter 6 of Daniel. There's a king, Darius, and he threw Daniel in the lion's den. You guys know that story since you grew up in Sunday school. 
And in uh, chapter 20, or chapter 6, verse 26, after Daniel doesn't get eaten up by the lions and Darius finds him, he says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Darius. Why can bad things happen to Israel and Judah? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Two kings, two pagan kings, ended up coming to know Yahweh through this captivity. An incredible thing. Uh, And so you have Naaman, a man renouncing his gods and saying there's no other God in all the earth except in Israel. No other God. And it just takes us back to Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, You can just flip back there. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse uh, 41. When Solomon prays out, Uh, The temple has just been built. Solomon's making his prayer, consecrating the temple. And he says, verse 41, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who's not from your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. Here on earth your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you. It's always been God's plan for the Gentiles, the non-Jews to get saved. And here Naaman is coming to know, uh, to know the God of Israel. You know, and, and notice, man, that all the earth may know God and fear him. And here we see Naaman knowing him, fearing him. He's heard of the fame of the God of Israel. And he wants to give, verse 15, he wants to give a gift to Elisha. But Elisha says, Verse 16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha says, you know what? God is a living God and I stand before him. And one day, every one of us is going to stand before God. And our life is going to be an open book basically before him. We're going to receive rewards for what we did and did not do in this life or the lack of rewards. I'm going to stand before God one day, and you know what? It wasn't me that did this work. I can't take credit for it. It wasn't me. It was God that did it. And you know what? He knew where the glory belonged. You know, do you know that God wants to do great and awesome things through you like he did through Elisha? He wants to do great and awesome things more than you want him to do great and awesome things. But the question is, is his glory safe with you? Billy Graham said, did not touch three things in the church. Don't touch the glory, don't touch the girls, you know, and don't touch the, um, the gold, you know. You know, those three things, you know, don't touch the, uh, another guy put it, you know, the, uh, the broads, you know, don't touch the, um, the, shoot, the boasting, I forget it. You know, don't touch those three things. You know, the glory belongs to God. And many pastors fall because they don't hold those three things in complete, you know, the fear of the Lord. You know, they, they don't fear God in not touching those things. And so, man, especially as we, we look to revival, uh, the Lord working revival, man, let's, let's make sure we have our f- mind focused right on giving the glory right to God. You know, I'm not going to receive anything from you. It reminds me of Peter in Acts chapter 3, where he says, um, you know, they just healed the man at the gate beautiful. He, this little man had not walked in 40 years since his birth. 
And yet Peter and John healed him and people were marveling at what Peter and John, supposedly what Peter and John had done. And if you look over there in Acts, we're almost done, but flip over there. One time of the week, we get to dig deep in God's word. Let's, let's enjoy it to its fullness. But look there in Acts chapter three, verse 12, people are marveling that this man has just been healed. They all knew who he was. He was 40 years uh, of cripple there. And Peter saw it, Acts chapter three, verse 12. When Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? It's exactly what Elisha's going through. Don't look at me as if it was through something great that I am that this man is walking right now after 40 years. And then look over at verse 16. He says this, it's and in his name, Jesus's name, through faith in his name, he has made this man strong who comes, see and know, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, he's given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It was through faith in Jesus that healed this guy, not Peter and John. They knew who the glory belonged to, and so did Elisha. And so verse 17, so Naaman said, well, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but to the Lord. And so here's this new convert, has a lot of growing to do, thinks that he has to take Israeli dirt back to Syria to worship on. And, uh, you know, that, that wasn't God's heart or command at all, but a neat heart nonetheless, very zealous and on fire at this point in his conversion. Um, In verse 18, yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, And he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. What what would you guys say? No, I you know, I wouldn't. uh, No, you need to quit your job. You need to, you know, move down to Israel, you know, and uh, no, you know, I, I, I wouldn't if I didn't know the rest of the story, you know. Uh, but what you see here, and you might just write in the margin of your Bible, we see in Naaman here a tender conscience, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, knowing and planning ahead, counting the cost. You know what? I'm going to go back. Man, what's going to happen when we go into the temple of Rimon? I don't believe in this God. I believe in Yahweh, that he's the only God. But, you know, perhaps he was thinking, I've got a witness there in Syria. I'm a witness now. I'm a light to King Ben-Hadad. You know, I feel like the Lord has me there. And, you know, I know people that when they get saved, they're bartenders, you know, or they work for places that sell stuff that's questionable, you know. And, and you know, we as Christians, we can't be so quick to make rules. You know, there's certain things that, you know, you, we have to stand by. And then there's things that, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You need to pray. There's certain things that it's not the difference between right and wrong. It's about, you know, good and better, you know, or a good idea and a God idea. And so, you know, I don't know what I would have told. I I think I know what I would have told him. Um, But we see that Elisha tells him to go in peace, to go in peace, you know, and basically saying, you know, the the Lord knows your heart, that at no point are you bowing the knee to to Rimon. You know, you're being a faithful servant to your king and and your heart is in a, it's in a good place, you know? And so um, definitely something that it's a whole Bible study in and of itself, Christian liberties, you know, we'll get there when we get to Romans and 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. We're almost done. We're not finishing the chapter tonight, so don't, you know, you can start breathing again. Oh, good, man, at this pace, oh, rapture, please happen right now. Um, but he does say, he says, go in peace. So he departed there uh, 
and went a short distance. And uh, so there's something that we can see here in Naaman, just a total picture of New Testament salvation here in Naaman. Incredible thing in his leprosy. You know, we established that leprosy was sin, but let's just look. Let's look at Naaman and let's, let's look at New Testament Christianity. Number one, Naaman was an enemy. Naaman was an enemy. And Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we were enemies of God, Christ reconciled us to himself. Do you understand that? Before you came to Jesus, you were at war with God. Maybe tonight you're here and you're not, you're not a Christian. Well, let me tell you something. You're not a good person either. You're at war with God. You're his enemy. The good news is, is that tonight you can surrender and raise the white flag. You can be forgiven and reconciled and no longer be an enemy of his tonight. It's the beautiful gospel, my friends. The beautiful gospel. Naaman was an enemy. Naaman was a Gentile. Uh, he, he was a Gentile. That's a picture of, of Jesus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, and it's the only reference to Elisha, he says, you know what? As he's getting rejected by the Jews, he tells them, Elijah ministered only to one Gentile woman. There were tons of women at Gentile or uh, widow women in Israel at that time. But the only widows that Elijah ministered to was the widow of Zarephath, a Gentile, a non-Jew. And then he goes on to say in Luke 4, and Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel in the day of Elisha, but the only leper that was healed was a Gentile leper named Naaman. And we see that Jesus, because he was rejected by the Jews, turned and went to the Gentiles to save the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so that we non-Jews can provoke the Gentile or the Jews to jealousy, that they look at us and say, I want what those Oregonians have. How come I don't have that intimacy with my, my God? How come they're having intimacy with God? I don't understand. Read Romans 11. It's what it's all about. And so Naaman was a Gentile that got saved. Naaman was a leper, and we established how he was a sinner, a sinner that took him deeper and deeper, just like we are sinners who've gone deeper and deeper in sin, and it's held on to us. It's isolated us from Christians and from God, and it's making us stink physically and spiritually, you know? And, and eventually our sin is going to kill us. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he was healed from his leprosy, just like we can be healed of our leprosy tonight. Forgiven by every sin that we've ever had, or forgiven from every sin that we've ever had. He was witnessed to and shared the gospel, you know, uh, by, by this little girl. He was witnessed to. Just like each one of us, we've been told the, the good news of the gospel. Are you going to receive it? He was witnessed to, and then he rejected it. He got angry. His pride almost made him miss out. Tonight, as you hear about Jesus delivering you of your sins, are you going to receive it, or in your pride, are you going to reject it like Naaman did at first? <laughs> Don't reject it. But tonight, the call is out there to humble yourself and listen to the word of God. Number six, this, this comparison, he was born again. He was born again. He was made like a little child. Have you been born again? Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you haven't, or assuredly I say to you, uh, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again, made like a little child? Has your flesh been made new? Jesus can do that tonight. Naaman humbled himself. When he humbled himself and dipped in the water, the blemish was gone. When you humble yourself, the blemish will leave. The eighth thing is that Naaman was saved by grace. It wasn't by his uh, position or his wealth, 
or his valor or his great treasures that saved him. It was a gift of God that saved him. It was free. Just go dip in the water. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it's by a free gift that we're saved out of our sin. It's not by our works or our money or our prominence, lest any one of us would boast against God when we got to heaven on that day. Oh, I'm in heaven because I'm a millionaire, you know, or because I did this or I did that. No, it's by grace that we're saved. It's by grace that Naaman was healed. Naaman had evidence of salvation. He turned from his gods. He renounced his gods and called on the name of Yahweh as the only true God. Is there evidence in your life tonight of your conversion? If not, spend time with Jesus and let him bear fruits in your life that are worthy of repentance. And the last thing is is that uh, Naaman came down to Israel with pride and rage, but he left Israel that day with peace covering him. So we'll close on that tonight. And Stuart, you can come up and we can go get the kids. I don't know why it feels like we went long. We're actually one minute shorter than we usually are. That might be your decision on if you ever come back here again or not. Um, But let's put our Bibles down and let's stand. And uh, someone can go grab the the kids and bring them in. Tonight, we're just going to close with uh, like two different songs. And if any point you have to leave, uh, you're free to leave tonight. And uh, But man, I encourage you to at least stay for one song. And we're going to have the elders just on the back row. If anyone's sitting on the back row, just just, uh, why don't we just have the elders be back there and Maybe some elders' wives if you're here. And, and uh, you know, we're just going to s- just spend some time humbling ourselves before the Lord and crying out to Him to humble us. Lord, tonight we just ask that you would examine us and show us our leprosy. Show us our compromise. We're just, we've tasted of sin and we think it's not going to affect anything or anyone. And, and yet, Lord, it's, we know it's going to spread. And it's going to cost us and it's going to separate us and it's going to ravish us and destroy us and disfigure us. It's going to kill us. And Lord, we want to come to you. We want you to touch us and heal us from our sin, Lord. We want to lay down our pride. Lord, we want to lay down how we think salvation should look. Oh, I'm going to go to church a lot. I'm going to be a member of a church. I'm going to tithe a lot and give a lot of money and that's what's going to save me. And Lord, you tell us that By the works of the flesh, no one will be justified. Lord, may we just humble ourselves and receive that free gift of eternal life that comes through your blood, the ransom that you paid for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that those of us here tonight that we're like the little servant girl, we are uh, timid and and, uh, we don't think people would listen to us. Lord, may we be obedient to hear you and to talk when you tell us to talk. Lord, I pray that as we sing, Lord, you just bring the message back through our minds and just show us where we need to be changed. And Lord, that we'd humble ourselves and let you change us.